Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. You can put in the call, it was confirmed at 1640 is obvious. We are sending medical back now. Is that dispatch? Where's the family at right now? It's a cold day in November 2016. Police in the small northern California town of Laytonville have just gotten a call about a possible homicide. Do you, do you have any identification with you, bud? In body cam footage, you can see a cop talking to a man in the parking lot of a rundown roadside motel. What's your first name? James. And middle name? James is wearing scruffy blue overalls with long blonde dreadlocks sticking out from beneath a baseball cap. He tells the cops he's been up in the mountains for the last couple weeks. I walked all the way down here from there. It took about eight hours. And the reason he says he walked eight hours through the woods is because he discovered a body. The body of someone he knows. How do you know the person that's out? That was Sam Anderson in an excerpt from the new podcast, Crooked City, the Emerald Triangle. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on the California Report magazine, we're going to take a deep dive into the investigation of a murder in Mendocino County. It's a remote forest region where people live off the grid, deep among towering redwoods, rushing rivers, and rugged mountains. For centuries, it's attracted fortune seekers who dream of striking it rich. In the beginning, they came to these mountains for gold, but now they grow weed. From hidden camps in the forest, pot growers cultivate hundreds of thousands of pounds of marijuana. And before this plant was legalized, these mountains were controlled by outlaws. This is a story about two outlaws whose search for freedom led to unspeakable violence. Sam Anderson joins us now to talk about the Emerald Triangle, the podcast he spent five years working on. Hey there, Sam. Hi, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the man who was murdered, the man who we heard about in that opening tape. What do we know about him? Uh, His name is Jeff Settler. Uh, His nickname was Jesus Jeff. He was a 35-year-old cannabis farmer in Mendocino. He was Growing weed in Laytonville, we know that he was a black market farmer. We know that he's from Lubbock, Texas. But that's sort of all I really knew going into this. But it turns out the main suspect in the case was somebody you knew from growing up in New Jersey all the way on the other side of the country. Yeah, that's right. That's how I initially found out about this story. The news went around that this guy, Zach, that we all grew up with was accused of murder. And it was really, really shocking to hear that because this was a kid who, by all accounts, was like perfectly normal. A man was found murdered in a rural property off Highway 101. 
The police say their main suspect is 24-year-old Zachary Worcester. That name, Zachary Worcester, is the reason I'm telling this story. Because Zach and I, we know each other. In fact, we grew up together in a small town in New Jersey. We went to the same high school and used to be on the wrestling team together. Zach was a popular guy. He was friends with everyone. So when it came out that this kid from our hometown was accused of a horrific murder on the other side of the country, people didn't know what to believe. I would say about seven or eight headlines. Zachary Wooster wanted for murder. And like, Zachary Wooster, fugitive from New Jersey, wanted for manslaughter. All these articles said the same thing, that Zachary Wooster was accused of killing Jeffrey Settler, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. Never in a billion years, never would I ever think this kid is capable of ever doing something like this. He would never, he would never do this. You don't think there's any chance that he committed this murder? No, absolutely not. Jeffrey Settler was brutally beaten, stabbed, and left to die in a shack on the side of a mountain. Could Zach Wooster really be the one behind this terrible act of violence? The truth was hidden in those mountains. So that's how I got started on this story, because this guy, Zach, he was this totally normal kid that we all grew up with. We knew that he was into smoking weed. We knew he was into going to music festivals and like maybe you know, using some recreational substances. But the idea of him being accused of murder was just absolutely insane. And I knew that finding out his involvement would be a window into this world, the Emerald Triangle. And so at this point in your life, you just decided to take the leap and just like dive headfirst into this investigation. And at the time, you were really at a stage of life that I think a lot of 20-somethings are familiar with, right? You were, you had moved back home with your folks. Yeah, that was a time in my life when I was working on and off at WNYC, the public radio station in New York. Um, But a lot of it was per diem work. You know, there were times when I just didn't have any any employment. And so, you know, I I wound up back at my parents' place because I couldn't afford the rent and I needed a break. And I was just like, well, what what should I do? You know, as a journalist, you're always hungry for stories, right? You're always on the hunt. And I, I had heard some stories about this place, the Emerald Triangle itself. Before I found out about what happened to Zach, I had actually had a couple friends who had gone out to Mendocino or Humboldt or Trinity County to trim weed. And they came back with these incredible stories. Like they described it as the Wild West, like this total outlaw place where there's no rules. They're all smoking tons of weed and like, you know, showing me pictures of like them posing with like 100 pounds of weed. And it being from New Jersey, where weed was like very, very criminalized back when I first started investigating this story, it's legal now. But, um, Seeing those photos and hearing those stories, uh, it, it all felt sort of like a dream to me almost, like this this rugged place across the country in, in California, which always looms large in the minds of us East Coasters, right? It's like this place of freedom, uh, living an alternative lifestyle. You can go out there and be whoever you want to be and participate in this economy of of cannabis and you can also like make a lot of money that was the other big draw for the folks that i knew right these were young 
creative 20-somethings, didn't want to have a day job. And so I became really, really interested in the Emerald Triangle. And I was like, you know, I'm not doing anything. And this story, I just have an instinct that it's really going to lead somewhere incredible. And I'm really glad I decided to pursue it. So you basically decide you're just going to get in your car and come out here to California. And you get to Mendocino County and you're kind of an outsider. Yeah. And I had a lot of trepidations about that because I knew going into it that this was going to be a difficult story to report because most of the subjects or potential subjects would be outlaws, right? These are folks engaged in illegal drug dealing. And now marijuana is legal in California. We don't think of it that way, right? But back then, you know, these were still folks who were very closely guarded about what their activities were and were not friendly to outsiders. I had talked to a couple people who had experience out there, and they were like, don't tell anyone you're a journalist. Good luck with that, man. You ever been to the bar in Laytonville? No. You'll get chased the out. It's no joke out there. I was like, oh God, what am I supposed to do? Plus, being a podcaster, you know, I'm walking around with this big microphone, right? And one of the first places I wanted to go was this local bar called Wheels Cafe. I knew that Jeff Settler, the victim of this homicide, hung out there a lot. And I thought it would be a great place to start. I step out of the car and pray that my jersey plates aren't visible. Out on the porch are a number of characters who definitely look like they've spent a lot of time in the woods. As I draw closer, they turn their gaze to meet me. There's one guy with messy blonde dreadlocks rolling a huge joint. Another man is drinking a beer while fingering the hilt of a very long and dangerous looking knife hanging from his belt. I step into the bar, suddenly feeling very self-conscious about my buzz cut and my jeans that are a little too tight and definitely too clean for this place. As the bartender pours me a beer, I spot another guy lingering in the corner on his own, staring off into space. He's tall and lanky, wearing a bright yellow tie-dye shirt. Out of everyone, he seems the least threatening. So I walk over and ask him, how's your day going? He looks up at me with glassy blue eyes, as if awakening from a dream. I'm okay, he says. I was just at the cemetery, paying my respects to an old friend who was killed in this town. I ask him, Who's your friend? He responds, Jeffrey Settler. Wow, you got lucky right away when you walked into that bar. Yeah, I I really, really did. Uh, The very first person I met in Laytonville was friends with the guy who was murdered. You know, I kind of was like, wow, maybe this town really is just incredibly tiny. Um, But after I got to know this character, Sean... I started to wonder if, like, there was some spiritual connection going on, like if Jeff Settler had, had like, I don't know, maybe orchestrated our connection from the beyond or something. But you couldn't just, like, go right in with your microphone and, and find out what happened to Jeff Settler through him. You really had to earn his trust. And in order to do that, you had to have a lot of crazy conversations and also smoke a lot of weed with him. <coughs> Sean lights up a joint and passes it to me before continuing on with his theory about the flow of universal life. Like, how badass would it be if when you die, you go and you go into the hard drive and then you're like, I want to reincarnate as Napoleon. I want to reincarnate as Alexander the Great. I want to reincarnate as Kim Kardashian. 
<coughs> I want to reincarnate as the squirrel that was, <laughs> you know, living in Mount Shasta. From <laughs> I want to reincarnate as the tree in Yosemite Park in that one corner. You know, like whatever, dude. After rambling about reincarnation for a very, very long time, Sean finally starts talking about Jeff. We were always dancing, bro. We were always going to concerts and shows, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sean told me that's how they met, in the festival scene in California. Jeffrey had this thing, like, I'd have to be standing to show you. But yeah, I'll show you the mannerism, and you can feel, you'll be able to feel the energy. But he would constantly move around, like. Yeah. The Grateful Dead dance. Just like this, it's like you're high in acid. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, like yeah. This. Sean starts flailing his arms around, twirling his fingers, imitating this dance I had mostly seen in Woodstock documentaries. So clearly, Sean is not the typical guest you would have on an investigative podcast. He's kind of a funny space cadet. But he also gets you really deep into this world that's pretty dangerous, and you end up in some pretty precarious situations. Yeah, and... The scene I believe you're speaking about was a moment after Sean and I spent our day driving around. We went to San Francisco and then we came back and uh, he asked me for a ride to his friend's house. And, you know, his friend turned out to be this like total outlaw, white supremacist, like Nazi memorabilia on the walls, like mm-hmm. lived in this cabin in the woods and he had like, these weapons everywhere. And so Sean brings me to this guy's house and I was like, oh, God, like what what have I gotten myself into? So Sean brought me over to this guy's house. Um, I chose not to use his real name. Um, We decided to call him Jim. So I was like, okay, God, we're at a white supremacist's house. What, how am I going to handle this? And then, you know, we start smoking a little weed and I I start to get (laughs) pretty paranoid and like kind of scared about what was going on. Finally, Sean comes back and sits down. But then he falls asleep, just like that, asleep in his chair. Is he okay? I ask. Jim looks at Sean and his face goes white. What did you give him? I ask. I knew they exchanged something in the kitchen. I didn't give him anything, he says. I go up to Sean and slap him in the face. No response. Jim runs into the kitchen, gets a glass of water, and dumps it on Sean's head. No response. He said, I think he's overdosing. We need to bring him to the fire department now. That's where the EMTs are. Jim grabs him under the shoulders, I grab his legs, and we carry Sean outside, stuffing his limp body into the front seat of my car. Jim is in the back, reaching over the seat with his hands on Sean's chest, trying to give him CPR. But the angle is all wrong, and it's not having any effect. Not again, he says. I won't let another one die. By the time we get to the fire department in Laytonville, the EMTs are outside waiting. Jim had called 911 to tell them we were coming. They pull Sean out of the car, stretch him out onto the pavement, and then shove a thing of Narcan in his nose. And just like that, he wakes up. The EMTs put Sean in an ambulance, and Jim breathes a huge sigh of relief. Then he turns to me and says, Okay, I can't be here. You got this? And he walks away. I jump in my car and follow the ambulance to the hospital. 
man. I feel like I'm in too deep. Like, I don't even know why the I'm recording this. Like, this is real life, and this is the first time I'm really getting slapped in the face with it, that this is not a fantasy, that I'm not just on a fun business outing, being a reporter, like, chasing my dreams. Like, this is someone else's life that almost ended tonight. When you read about a weed grower getting killed in a newspaper, that's not real. That's a newspaper article. It's not real. Um, but when you come here and somebody who you became fast friends with, and when you see them almost die, and you literally are holding their body lifeless in your arms, and you open their eyes with your fingers, and their eyes are rolled back into their head, when you see that, that is real life. That is not a newspaper article. Wow. You were in very deep. I mean, at any point did you just think, man, this is too crazy. I, I can't do this story. Yeah, I definitely felt like I was in too deep in that moment. And I didn't really know, um, you know, why. <laughs> I, it was kind of just on instinct to just keep the tape rolling. I didn't really understand at that point how it was going to fit into the story. That was a really uh, profound moment for me in the process of reporting this story because it was the first time I really came face to face with the fact that I was in a place where people have serious traumas and vices and disillusionment. I think I, I would come to understand that addiction to substances like opiates, uh, which Sean was suffering from, was fairly common out there. And this was a place where folks could go if they didn't have other opportunities, right? Like working on pot farms is a job mm -hmm. you can get even if you do have a criminal conviction, even if you've been kicked out of your town for doing something wrong, or if maybe if you, you know, your family fell apart and you don't have a safety net anymore, like there were a lot of folks I met out there who did not have a safety net and who were sort of at the end of the line. And ultimately, those are exactly the sort of folks who were in the orbit of Jeff Settler, the pot grower who was murdered. So were you still in touch with Sean? What happened to him? I'm not in touch with him, and I don't actually know what happened to him. And that is something I've been trying to figure out. Um, you'd think with the resources that journalists have available to us today, it wouldn't be that hard. But I have no idea, really, what happened to Sean. And so um, if there's anybody out there in the Bay Area who, who knows this person and recognizes his voice, please do give us a shout, um, emeraldtrianglepod at gmail.com, because I do... I really would love to know what happened to him and how he's doing. Through the process of reporting this, Sam, you were doing this kind of gonzo journalism. I mean, you were just like going out there with your microphone, trying to meet whoever you could, getting into some of these sketchy situations. And you were also, for a lot of the reporting, living in a tent at a campground, right? I mean, sometimes you didn't even have cell service. Yeah. You know, I didn't really have much of a budget. I got a little bit of money uh, from a podcast company to go out there and get the story, but it was it was not a lot. And so, yeah, I wound up camping out for, for that first summer of reporting. And so I knew that, like, in order to really embody what Zach went through, because Zach, when he left New Jersey, he was doing the same thing, right? He was living on the road, like camping out of a tent and trying to find work as a weed trimmer. And so I knew that in order to fully understand what happened to Zach and how he ended up involved in Jeff's death, I would need to assume that role. And so that's what I did. But you were also trying to do investigative journalism, which is something you didn't have a ton of training in. And you had to figure out 
you know, how to get records and how to do investigative reporting from your tent. What would Bob Woodward do? You know, the guy from Watergate? What would he do if he woke up in the middle of the woods on a sketchy-ass pot farm? Hello. Hi. How are you guys? Good. Can we get a little uh, iced coffee, please? Yeah, of course. You want any cream and sugar in that? Yes, please. Okay, much better. Now, what would Bob Woodward do after getting sufficiently caffeinated? Hello. Hi. Hi, I am a reporter hoping to get some documents about a certain case. Probably go after some good old-fashioned public records, right? Which case? The Jeff Settler case. It was a murder that took place in 2016. That was Jeff Settler? Settler. Jeff Settler was the guy who was killed. Like you said, I really didn't have any experience with investigative journalism, but I knew that the place to start was like with the local courthouse. So I started cold calling people who were involved in the case, lawyers, prosecutors, detectives, other journalists, trying to figure out, you know, who knew about it. Through a bit of reporting, I figured out how to get some of the original law enforcement tapes. These were audio recordings of the detectives interviewing the suspects of Jeff's murder, trying to for, for so I could follow the the police trying to figure out what happened from their investigation. And that really helped me start to crack open the case. I don't want to give away too much, but you do end up finding out that it's not just Zach charged with this crime. There are seven different guys who've all been charged with Jeff Settler's murder and that Zach is just one of them. It's really not clear who did what or exactly what happened. Everybody points the finger at someone else. Zach, for example, points at Jesse. He was kind of really pumping every, everything up. Jesse was? Yeah. Why? At least really pumping me up. And Jesse, he points back at Zach. After what Zach and Cricket said to me, I wish I could point a finger at them. Did you ever go up the hill? No. Be honest with me. I never went up the hill. I never entered a dwelling. I never saw anything happen. So there's definitely some animosity between Jesse and Zach. Then there's what Giggles says about Zach. Zach at one point said, I'm gonna kill this guy, Jeff. But Zach throws it back on Kane and Cricket. Kane had told me and uh, Cricket both said that they were gonna kill him, but you know, I've known Kane for a few years and I didn't really think that he was serious. Giggles also points at Cricket. Cricket at one point, we went into the bar. He was just talking to me like, so we need to kill this guy, basically. The gist he was getting at. And Cricket, kind of agrees with him? I didn't, did I? That's what I'm asking, man. I don't want to know if I did. I don't want to know if I did. I don't want to know, because I'm not that kind of a person. Did you just get sucked into it? I didn't still want Kane to kill me. Zach. Cricket. Kane. Jesse. Cricket. Jesse, Kane. Giggles. Kane. Assaulted and killed Jeff. Sam, you spent five years on this project, and you really had your work cut out for you. This was a complicated case. Were you able to find out who did it? Yeah, and I'll say right off the bat, like this was not a cold case investigation. Um, but what happened was the, there were seven defendants who were involved, and ultimately they took plea deals. And these are these are not spoilers. You find this out very early in the podcast. But 
because they took plea deals, there was never a trial or a public facing decision that people could look and say, oh, that was the guy who did this, right? Or this was the guy who really killed Jeff because all of the suspects were pointing the finger at each other. So that was really my job with the show was unpacking who was responsible for what and with a specific eye towards Zach. Like, was this kid that I grew up with actually the guy who killed Jeff or was he responsible for it in some way? So, yeah, I am happy to say that we do come up with uh, some pretty compelling answers to the question of who killed Jeff Settler and uh, why they did it. But you're going to have to tune in. So, Sam, all of the events in this podcast took place in 2016. Actually, the murder took place just days after voters here in California passed Prop 64, legalizing the recreational use of marijuana. What's your sense about how the legalization of marijuana in our state may have changed the climate in the Emerald Triangle? Is it still that outlaw culture? Yeah, it's a super interesting question um, because legalization was thought to be a panacea for like a lot of the problems of the outlaw culture of the Emerald Triangle, right? All of these murders, these robberies that take place up there, a lot of them can be traced back to prohibition because this is an illegal product. When people grow it and distribute it and have it on hand, they're going to be a target for robberies and crime goes up, right? Um, So you would think that legalization would prevent that from happening. It would make crime go down. But in fact, that's not really what happened at all. Um, Because there have been so many issues with legalization, with the rollout, with compliance being extraordinarily expensive for small farmers, um, with no real limits set on corporate cannabis operations that can grow thousands upon thousands of plants. It's very, very difficult to make it work as a legal cannabis farmer in the state of California. It's either like you go on the black market and you make some money by, you know, trafficking your weed to other states where it's still illegal and you can still make, you know, a good price on that pound or you choose to go legal and the price of legal weed this fall, it was going for $100 a pound. Hmm. You just cannot make a living on that as a cannabis farmer. And so right now, the outlaw culture continues. Sam, what did you learn about yourself, about journalism, and about the myth and reality of California through reporting this podcast? Oh, thank you for asking me such a nice question. Um, Well, when I first started reporting this story, I, I think I totally bought into this mythology of the place. I I really got sucked into this dream of going out to California, this land of freedom, this place where you can be whoever you want to be and like make money at the same time. Um, But when I got there and when I really dove deep into this, the events that happened at Jeff Settler's pot farm, the conditions that I uncovered at this farm were absolutely horrendous. The trimmers who come here from out of state, off in other countries, have to deal with uh, in terms of their working conditions, in terms of securing pay for their labor, in terms of their accommodations, their shelter. Um, It's really, really rough. I mean, we're talking about exploitation, um, violence, sexual abuse. The people who work at these pot farms are some of the most vulnerable workers that I've ever encountered. And so I think that myth really became shattered But there's still something about this place, this lifestyle, the beauty of it, the being close to nature that make it truly a dream to live here. And so I just feel, you know, really grateful that this story brought me out here to such a wonderful place and gave me the opportunity to make stories about workers in California. Sam Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me, Sasha. 
Sam Anderson is the host and reporter for the new season of the Crooked City podcast called The Emerald Triangle. You can find out more about what happens with the murder investigation if you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our team includes Victoria Mauleon, Katrina Schwartz, Susie Racho, Christopher Beal, Brendan Willard, and Jessica Carissa. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thank you so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.